it's a little bit like if you're driving along the M1 in your car and you see that the petrol gauge is on low. So you sort of panic a bit and you think, I've got to fill up. So you pull into the petrol station, you open, open up the petrol cap, start to fill up, and then you realize actually the tank is full already. And the issue is that the petrol meter is broken. And this is the same with leptin resistance. So there's plenty of energy on board, but the petrol meter that the brain is reading shows empty. And this is why obese people will binge eat regularly. You have found the Thinking Mind podcast. I'm here with Andrew Jenkinson. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure, Alex. I just finished reading your book and I found it to be a very refreshing look at how to navigate the problem of nutrition and how to think about the obesity crisis as it stands currently. And there does seem to be quite a significant disparity between the mainstream conversation around obesity, metabolic problems, nutrition, and a lot of the science which you so clearly describe in your book. And it it seems obvious from national statistics that this is a problem so far that is only getting worse. And not only is it worse by itself, but it's also interacting with with the COVID-19 pandemic, as you outline in in a chapter of your book as well. So I'd love to dive into all of these topics with you. Um, The first question I want to ask is, what what, um, motivated you to write this book? You already had an established career as a bariatric surgeon. And and what what, uh, compelled you then to, to make this sort of public statement and this deep dive into the science around obesity? I became very intrigued as part of my job as a bariatric surgeon in this whole area of of obesity. And the sort of question kept coming up in my mind, why would someone be in such a severe situation with obesity that they would come and ask for me to remove their stomach or bypass their stomach? When we know that, or when we're taught that weight loss is a very easy dynamic, basically, you eat a little bit less, you exercise a little bit more until you start losing weight and you continue doing that until you reach a a regular uh, natural weight and then the problem's over. But in reality, it's much, much more difficult than that. Yes, certainly in the short term, patients who struggle with obesity can lose some weight, but in the long term, it it seemed from my conversations and consultations with patients that it wasn't that easy at all and that something else was going on that we didn't understand. I sort of, I didn't think there there was a sudden sort of mass problem with a population or a third of the population becoming weak-willed and lazy. I didn't, I didn't sort of think it was a psychological problem. I thought maybe it was something to do with the the environment, i.e. the food that we eat and the way that we live. So yeah, this sort of really inspired me um, and fascinated me. And I sort of spent five years doing a lot of reading around the area of you know, metabolic regulation, how, how our bodies are, are designed to be a particular weight and how our bodies will defend that weight. I came across this sort of concept of the weight set point, uh, which explained exactly what my patients have been telling me, basically. Yes, we can force our weight down transiently, but it will always go back up to, to the weight the body wants to be. And quite often, that's an unhealthy weight. So it's, the book is a, sort of an expa- expansion and explanation of the weight set point hypothesis. Mm-hmm. So let me, maybe I could, as you started to do, I could lay out the mainstream case of obesity and maybe elaborate it a bit. And you can tell me why it's wrong. Yeah. So I think most people would say that being overweight and perhaps being obese is simply a case of eating too many, too many calories, not exercising enough. We do live in a more sedentary, uh, sedentary society now than, than we ever have before, particularly in terms of the macronutrients, feed, the fats, the carbohydrates and the protein fats are the most calorie dense and fats of course as we know clog our arteries and and lead to things like heart disease and really if we want to lose weight what we have to do is 
eat significantly less, particularly less fat because it is so calorie dense. And in terms of exercise, we need to do particularly cardio because cardio is, is the form of exercise which burns the most calories. And ideally, we should also eat less salt because salt is, can affect our blood pressure. So why, why is that wrong? That's a really good uh, summary, Alex, of yeah, current mainstream thinking about uh, weight regulation and obesity. Um, so the first point is the energy in, energy out. So the calories taken in by eating um, and calories expended by exercise. And the simplified understanding that, you know, this is the ultimate cause of weight gain. Um, the, the energy sort of in out balance is obviously very important. I mean, you, you can't gain weight with ta without taking in more energy than you, than you use. But our bodies are able to manipulate the amount of energy that we expend um, in order to either save energy if we're losing too much weight, or actually, more commonly, uh, to expend a lot of more energy than we need just to get rid of excess calories. Uh, so this sort of really dynamic alteration in the amount of energy that we burn, and this is uh, our basal metabolism, so the amount of energy that we burn without taking into account movement, is a really important uh, and sort of overlooked and misunderstood factor in whether someone's going to be able to lose weight or whether they gain weight. And we know from uh, a lot of quite often historical research, which shows that if you take uh, a group of people who are the same age and same sex and same size, and you measure their basal metabolic rate, so the amount of energy that they use every day without moving before they move, that's actually accounts for about 70% of our energy expenditure. So it is a big bulk of our energy expenditure we have a zero you know, control of. But if you take sort of a group of people and you look at the, the, the range, uh, the normal range, so excluding you know, the 5%, so the under metabolizers and the 5% over metabolizers, if you look at the range, it probably encompasses about 700 kilocalories. So someone in the lower range compared to someone normal normal upper range, the difference would be 700 kilocalories per day. Um, and this is the same as a 10K run or more than a 10K run or, you know, a large three-course meal or, you know, a, 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 you know, really going for it at McDonald's or some fast food restaurant. Um, so there are massive differences between people who uh, appear the same size and shape. And this, again, is sort of borne out by a lot, a lot of what my patients did tell me um, in that they would say when they moved in with a friend, when they were at university or whatever, they observed that their friend could eat a lot, a lot more than them, and their friend was slim. And these are sort of, you know, these comments are, are, are sort of dismissed a little bit by you know, mainstream thinking. But when you look into the evidence behind them, uh, they actually are probably, there's a, a great element of truth in them. So that's the first area that you mentioned the energy in energy out yes that is important but the energy out is very dynamic and not under our control we may think we can control it by going to the gym now and again but um it's so that that control is minimal compared to the amount of control the body has another example would be you know if we look at the amount of energy that our population as a whole has uh, eaten compared to 30 years ago, we, so we, we now eat 500 kilocalories per day more per person than uh, 30 years ago. If you simply put that into the equation of 500 kilocalories extra in per day, we should be putting on something like, I think, four stone per person per year and clearly that's not happening. The population's getting bigger by a pound um, or 0.5 kilograms uh, per year. Obviously, over, over 20 or 30 years, that's quite a problem. Uh, we, that's why the, the populations are now becoming uh, morbidly obese. But if we took into account actually, you know, the actual amount of calories that we're expending, sorry, that we're putting in, mm -hmm. then it, you know, the, the figures don't add up. So this sort of our metabolic adaptation can actually burn that extra energy. And this is sort of explained in the book by effects on our sympathetic nervous system. So we you know we'll get a 
tachycardia, our heart will beat faster, uh, our blood pressures will be high, and we will be sort of, there'll be activity in our muscles which can, can turn chemical energy into thermal energy. It's called an uncoupling reaction in the ATP. So all of these things can expand the excess calories that we take in. When we go on a diet, um, and or we're sick or we're in a situation where there was a famine and our calorie intake is, mm -hmm. is limited, then again the body adapts. So our parasympathetic nervous system comes into play and that becomes much more active. Our blood pressure goes down, our mm -hmm. pulse goes down, and we become colder. Um, and our basal metabolic rate becomes less. And so you can have a person who, for instance, will diet and go on 1,200 kilocalories a day and lose some weight for the first two, three weeks. But then their body adapts and that's all they're burning. They're feeling sluggish. They're feeling, you know, uh, irritable. Um, they don't want to get out of bed because their parasympathetic nervous system has taken over. Um, so they're not expending anything. So this is why diets, you know, only work in the short term. We're, we're very good at, you know, um, adapting to either overeating or undereating in order to maintain what our bodies think is a healthy weight and what is explained in the book as the weight set point. You do, uh, you sort of, so that's sort of the initial energy in, energy out sort of equation. Uh, the fact it's a little bit more complex than, than that simple equation. You then spoke about how we have the three macronutrients, fat, carbohydrates, and protein, and how we have this uh, historical understanding from scientists that fat clogs up our arteries and you know, causes heart disease. And also, secondarily, it's very dense in calories. So the, the, the mainstream advice for many, many years has been, you know, in order to uh, reduce weight, you need to cut those calories in fat. And as a secondary effect of that, that's going to you know, improve your cardiac risk. Again, if you look into the research, which is explained in the book, in part two of the book, there was a, you know, a big scientific debate in the 1960s between whether sugar or um, saturated fat caused the increase in heart disease that we were seeing at the time. Um, and the sort of the fat lobby won, as it were, via a guy called Ansel Keys. But a lot of that research has subsequently been proved to be flawed. But because we had, you know, many, many years of, you know, the whole population understanding um, that, you know, saturated fat causes heart disease, it's really difficult now to slow to tell the population actually that's totally wrong. And sugar is, you know, a much more damaging from a cardiovascular point of view as well as from a from a weight point of view. So we, you know, historically, we, we advised our populations to stop eating saturated fat. We told the food companies to remove saturated fat from foods and you know, replace it with low fat options. And those changes coincided with obesity increasing significantly in the 1980s. There is, there has been a decrease in the rate of heart disease, but, you know, the rate of smoking has decreased significantly and our treatment of heart disease and, you know, the preemptive, the prophylactic treatment to prevent things coming, like the treatment of hypertension, for instance, has improved substantially. And that would, that would, I think, explain the reduction in heart disease and not the reduction in saturated fat that the populations that eat. When you look at actually what foods cause weight gain, I think there is a consensus that sugar and carbohydrates are the sort of main culprits. And the book explains that it, it's not specifically the calories in those foods it's what the food does uh to your home hormonal balance uh and I'm, I'm sure a lot of the listeners have heard a lot about insulin but the more sugar and carbohydrate you you consume the higher your average levels of insulin throughout the day and week uh, we know as doctors that if we treat someone with insulin for diabetes they will put weight on they will you know within a few weeks they'll put a stone on or two stone and so the book explains that, you know, the Western diet, which is infused with sugar and refined carbohydrate like wheat, is almost acting like a proxy drug uh, to increase our insulin levels. And the secondary effect of that is weight gain with the population. But the smokescreen is that, you know, sugar has got a lot of calories as well. And mainstream understanding is it's the calories that are causing the weight gain. It's not, it's, it's the fact that the insulin levels in your 
your average insulin levels are shifted upwards and that insulin is an anabolic hormone it causes you know weight gain and growth so yeah it's it, this this was the ultimate cause of the increase in obesity rates in the 80s so much more consumption of sugar and refined carbohydrates and less of saturated fat and and i guess the additional problem is by targeting fat not only are you missing sugar as one of the main drivers but fat is actually a very important part of your diet because fat is the basis of our nervous system and a lot of our hormones so actually if you eat no fat or very little fat you can get very very sick yeah that's that's correct and the one of the replacements apart from you know sugar and refined carbohydrates of saturated fat was the slightly newly discovered food called vegetable oil and this is again explained in the book as uh, it's it's metabolically quite damaging to us as well as humans so um, the book explains that we have um, particular well, there's three particular types of fat class so there's monounsaturated fat, fats such as olive oil there's saturated fats such as butter lard and ghee and the saturated fat within meat uh, red meat and then in between is polyunsaturated fats and these are vegetable oils and in nature polyunsaturated sort of fatty acids are um, there's two particular types that are very very important to us uh, because we can't every other fat we can make in our bodies without consuming it such as cholesterol and whatever uh, but there are two particular types of fat that we can't make within our body and they are the omega fatty acids so omega-3 and omega-6 particularly um, and we are reliant on taking those in within our diet and so the book explains that you know when we eat a lot less fresh foods which contain a lot of omega-3 such as you know your greens and you know fresh meats and fresh fish and things like that we're reducing our omega-3 levels and when we eat a lot of processed foods which is very stable and can last for a long time and you know you can put it on the supermarket shelf um, those foods are infused with omega-6 fatty acids so vegetable oils basically every cell in our bodies has a space for omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids on our, mem on our cell membranes. And the ratio of the two is very important in a lot of factors, including ins insulin signaling um, and inflammation. The more omega-6 you have as a ratio in your diet, the more inflammation you're going to get in your body. It's a pro-inflammatory fatty acid. And also the more you're going to struggle with insulin resistance. So the insulin won't work as well because the cell membrane is not processing the insulin as well. So as well as sugar and refined carbohydrates in the Western diet causing obesity, also the shift towards vegetable oils as the main fat has totally disrupted our omega-3-6 profile uh, ratio. And that secondarily, again, causes changes to our internal sort of hormonal homeostasis with a secondary effect at our weight set points where our body wants our weight to be is shifted upwards and then we just put weight on. So we've got a diet with too many carbohydrates, which is causing you know, higher than normal insulin levels, which obviously causes a degree of weight gain. And we've got an unfavorable ratio of omega-3 to omega-6, that is to say too much omega-6 in, in relative to omega-3. And what that does is it makes the body more insulin resistant. Yes. So too much insulin plus insulin resistance and that leads to uh, an elevation of the body weight set point. Is that right? Yeah. And the reason for that is, um, so we get onto another hormone now, now that uh, regulates our, our weight on a sort of uh, over a long term, and that's called leptin. So leptin is a hormone that is produced by our fat cells and acts as a signal to our hypothalamus, which is the ultimate controller of our weight in our brain. It acts as a signal to how much fat we have on board, so how much energy storage we have you know, for times when there may be a famine or, or whatever in the future. So the more fat you have, the more leptin is produced, and the higher that leptin signal, and the hypothalamus can you know, sense. It's, so, it's sort of okay, we can take it easy uh, this week with food, and you know we, we, we can expend a load of energy or increase our metabolic rate. Conversely, when we lose fat, if we're sick or... We've been dieting or we're in a famine situation the leptin signal will go down and the hypothalamus will you know change our behavior and you know 
introduce sort of food-seeking behavior and decrease our meta metabolism. So leptin is very important in that long-term homeostasis negative feedback loop, which many people who don't struggle with weight problems, you know, they don't have to count calories. Leptin is doing the job for them. So if, you know, they've been a little bit sick or they've lost a little bit of weight, you know, they will be made hungry. If they've been on holiday and overdone it and put on two or three kilograms, the body will sense that, you know, a little bit too much fat on board. You can, you, I mean, a lot of people can try and lose their, their holiday weight gain by going to the gym and going on a diet, but actually the, the hypothalamus will do it anyway. So, so leptin is really, really important. So what goes wrong with obese people? Why isn't leptin working? And when you look at the function of it, it gets disrupted by insulin. So at the hypothalamic level, both insulin and leptin have the same receptor. They join to the same receptor within the hypothalamus. So if there's too much insulin around, the leptin signal gets diluted. So despite having a massive amount of energy on board and massive high leptin levels in morbidly obese people, they also have very high insulin levels and um, that leptin is not seen. This is called leptin resistance. And the analogy in the book is, it's a little bit like if you're driving along the M1 in your car and you see that the petrol gauge is on low, uh, it's on red. So you sort of panic a bit and you think I've got to fill up. So you pull into the petrol station, you open, open up the petrol cap, start to fill up and then you realize actually the tank is full already. And the issue is that the petrol meter is broken. And this is the same with leptin resistance. So there's, there's plenty of energy on board, but the petrol meter that the brain is reading shows empty. And this is why obese people will binge eat regularly. There's a lot of psychological aspects that people think, you know, why, why are obese people been cheating. They tend to do it in secret because it's embarrassing. They'll do it at night or whatever when there's no family members around, but they will consume you know, hundreds and hundreds of extra calories or thousands of extra calories per day, not because of you know any psychological problem, but because they have severe leptin resistance and they're getting those signals, those ravenous food-seeking behavior signals from the hypothalamus. Now, that sort of explains binge eating a little bit. But obviously, once you have those signals for a period of time and the food that is available to you is Western food, then you do develop a, an element of uh, addiction to that food. Um, so we know, you guys will know, that particularly sugar has a similar receptor that is stimulated to uh, as opiates. Vegetable oil-containing foods such as fast foods and processed foods are precursors to cannabinoids. So all of these are slightly addictive. They're foods that cause us to feel in a way, you know, various different receptors in our brain make us feel good. So the, the drive from leptin resistance is to eat calories. If the calories available in our Western high street happen to be, you know, from addictive foods, then highly likely that you're going to get a little bit addicted to, to that food as well. Do you think at that point then psychological problems can manifest themselves because you know, an addictive behavior can be such a natural refuge when someone is feeling stressed or someone feels like they're in an emotionally fragile position. And then the, the binge eating, not only is there the physiological drive from the leptin resistance, which you explained, but also the binge is kind of like almost like a safe harbor from the world and addiction, much like, much like a drug addiction. Yeah. I mean, if you can imagine being um, severely obese, the effect, and, and also being severely obese and doctors and scientists and the general public and the media and you having this understanding that it's the problem because of you, you know, it's nothing else. It's because you choose to, to eat too many bad calories, too many calories and you don't exercise enough. And you look massive and people in the street will look at you and blame you. You imagine the, the, the effect on your self-esteem and confidence. I certainly know that the patients that I see, at least half of them are on antidepressants. And they're driven to food by leptin resistance, but actually food becomes a very big comfort for them, for an antidepressant in itself. This is why you have to be very careful when we do bariatric surgery on people, which automatically will you know, make the leptin work a little bit better and reduce their weight set points substantially. But we have to be careful because a lot of people, uh, you know, food becomes uh, has become their, their friend. 
and we're taking that away. So all bariatric units will have, you know, a full-time bariatric psychologist to help mm-hmm. people through through those uh, those times. Mm-hmm. And is it also fair to say that the high insulin levels prevent? Well, my understanding is that when insulin levels are high, natural processes of lipolysis can't take place. Processes where fats would be broken down to provide steady energy throughout the day when someone's insulin insulin levels are low. Simply, those processes can't take place when the insulin levels are when insulin is present at all. Is that is that right? Uh, yes, and this is why I mean the constant sort of grazing and snacking behaviour that we've uh, developed. Uh, you know, constantly we constantly have a level of insulin, so you know it's very difficult for that to be broken down. Yeah, I've I've often thought of obesity. It's like because obviously, among other things, fat is an energy storage mechanism. And I've often thought of obesity like having a million dollars in a safe, which you can't open, and you're just kind of carrying it around with you all the time. You don't have access to the value yeah. that it can provide. And so and I guess we can now get on to what we can call practical steps or, or solutions. How do you start to access your fat storage for, for the energy that it can provide? So I think, I mean, the book goes through some ideas for trying to reduce your weight set points. I still didn't really want to make it a book about, you know, what you know what to do. Um, I just wanted to explain, you know, the, the, the weight set point and the history of our food, but the publishers are very keen to, to put in a, a section at the end about uh, advice. I suppose what's, what's, what, I, what I liked about your, the advice that you give is it is principles-based. Yeah. So it's less, you know, do this exact thing and it's more, these are the principles around which you should structure your lifestyle, which is obviously a lot more flexible, but it's also a lot more uh, empowering because it allows the person to, you know, embody and internalize those principles and then construct essentially a program that works for them rather than many diet books, which give the exactitudes of what you should do and the minutia, which is a really... um, a fragile setup it's really a setup for failure because it's you either do this exact thing or you fail so yeah it comes yeah. very easy to fail in that kind of paradigm yeah i mean the, the book explains i mean the first the first part is just to understand that it's not directly the calories that cause the weight gain it's what the food that what the food does to your body so if you understand that you don't have to you know worry about going hungry because you're you know you're starving yourself if you change the type of food that you eat, it will improve insulin, it will improve omega-3-6 profile. If you improve the way you relax and sleep, it will improve your cortisol uh, profile as well. These three things uh, will reduce your weight setting. Um, and I mean, the simple rules are, uh, the first one is obviously to give up or, or to cut down substantially on sugar and refined carbohydrates. The second one is to do a little bit of uh, exercise that you enjoy at least three times a week and probably muscular exercise is pretty good um, probably better than aerobic exercise and the sort of preconception about going to the gym and things is that you burn off those calories and that's how you lose weight but actually uh, good muscular and aerobic exercise as well improves insulin function massively and decreases our stress hormone cortisol so i think that the main effect of uh, weight loss going to the gym is through the improvement in in these hormones we know that when you go to the gym you just feel hungry afterwards you have to refuel but over the long term people lose weight which is why gyms haven't gone away mm-hmm. it's not purely running those calories off so so you shouldn't think about the gym as i'm going to the gym to burn off let's say 500 calories but rather it's i'm going to improve my metabolic machinery particularly if you're lifting weights and actually putting on muscle mass, yeah. that presumably would increase your basal metabolic rate. Just the amount of calories you'd need just to be alive would, would increase favorably. Yeah, and um, I think just a healthy muscle mass is, is good for, you know, even if you overeat, it's much more likely you're able to, you know, manip- your body can, you know, ratchet up that basal metabolism. Whereas if you very, very sedentary, you will get a degree of sarcopenia where your muscle mass does start to shrink. 
And then if that's combined with overeating, you know, it's very difficult for the, for the body to, to burn off those calories. Mm -hmm. And particularly a problem, this is diverging a little bit from the problem of obesity, but what happens with elderly people is that they tend to have much lower bone densities. And my understanding that's correlated with muscle mass. And of course, once you have that really low bone density, that that's why elderly people for elderly people a fall is potentially a really traumatic instance where you might break a hip. And if you break a hip and end up in hospital and you don't, you, ha you don't have a very strong cardio respiratory re reserve because you don't do any aerobic exercise and then you get pneumonia, you see how all these problems compound each other and can lead to a very vulnerable elderly population. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I'm increasingly, when I talk to, patients you know across the age spectrum but particularly as they're getting older i am advocating a lot more for strength and resistance training and in terms of the cardio i find walking is one of the most you know superior methods because it's it, it doesn't fatigue you it's enjoyable you can do other things while you're walking you can talk to a friend or you can listen to a podcast or something like that and you can you know uh, improve insulin functioning as you mentioned yeah, I'm not sure about walking. I, I mean, my instinct is that it's a bit overrated. A lot of my patients tell me they're doing the 10,000 steps a day. When you look into the research around 10,000 steps a day, there's nothing there. It's just some sort of myth that's, mm -hmm. you know, there's a myth that if you walk 10,000 steps a day, you're going to kind of lose weight. Yeah, you will be a lot fitter and you probably will lose a little bit of weight. But that time, you know, that hour and a half, two hours it takes to walk 10,000 steps. Actually, if you utilize that time by you know, going to the gym or going to the tennis club or, or, or whatever, or the squash club, um, it would be much better for you. So I don't think walking is bad at all, but you know, it takes a long time. Some people, if they're elderly, there's nothing much else they can do. And, and maybe brisk walking up a hill and to get a sweat up and things is okay. But a, a sort of leisurely stroll probably is better for the mind than the, uh, than the body. But as you, you know, if it improves your cortisol level, that's good. So the, um, yeah, the other areas in the book to, to reduce your weight setting where we, we talked about cortisol. So again, this is a drug. If I treated you with corticosteroids for, you know, autoimmune disease or something, you would put on a couple of stone uh, within within a few, a few weeks probably without, you know, without any conscious control. You just become, you know, much, much more hungry. Um, again, the way we live in the Western world does increase our low-grade levels of stress. And also we have, I think, as a population, quite a significant problem with sleep deprivation. Uh, and all of these things, I think, contribute to increased stress. But again, if you go to the gym, if you exercise, you know, that stress level will, will decrease. The final part of the, uh, the, the, the final, that probably very important part of the advice to reduce your weight setting is in regard to the omega-3 and 6 profile. So, you know, actually just start cooking healthy, unprocessed foods uh, and eating two or three meals a day and not snacking between meals. That's going to have a massive beneficial effect on your omega-3, 6 profile, your insulin function and your general health. And without going on any diet, you'll start to see weight, uh, you know, you gain a much healthier weight if you struggle with your weight beforehand. Um, you in the book, you outlined all those principles, and you also mentioned that other methods people use, such as tracking calories, using a measuring your weight on a scale. You kind of dismiss those. You think perhaps that they do more harm than good. My question is, if you make a distinction, because I suppose there are people who are at different points on the spectrum in terms of losing weight. There are people, for example, who are obese and they want to get down to a reasonably healthy weight. There are people who are mildly overweight and they want to lose weight. There are people who want to achieve quite, frankly, like specific aesthetics in terms of their body. Uh, and my question is, having employed those lifestyle measures that you mentioned, you know, more sleep, healthier food, fresh food, a more favorable omega-3 to omega-6 profile, do you think there might be a place for people who want to achieve a particularly good physique for calorie tracking and using your body weight to be a bit more precise and really the reason i bring this up is because i've followed quite closely a lot of bodybuilding literature 
and see how they can quite predictably do what they call bugs and cuts. You know, they can predict predictably gain or lose weight to achieve specific physiques. Uh, and I wanted to to get your thoughts on that. I don't think there's any big big problem with you know tracking your calories. You probably get a better understanding if you're really into it of you know your basal metabolism and how it reacts to calorie calorific deficits and whether you need to sort of ratchet up the exercise a little bit more. So I don't have any big issue with people tracking calories and weight. But if you sort of employ those lifestyle changes in the book, then, you know, the weight will just come off automatically. Yeah. The, the lifestyle changes would be the primary yeah. driver. But clearly, but clearly there's some people who, you know, they, they won't lose as much weight with a change in the book because their lifestyle is actually not too bad already and maybe just a couple of things but people who you know have a terrible lifestyle to eat a lot of sugar and wheat and uh, processed foods we know those people are going to lose a lot of weight just not by going on a diet but just by tidying up their food basically and the other thing frankly is and I, i'm really talking about myself i do think there is such a thing as gluttony like i do think you can eat enough so that you're not you're not craving excess food but you just eat past that level of fullness anyway i've noticed that in myself and and for that reason i've found calorie tracking just as a kind of guide to roughly how much i should eat quite helpful mm -hmm. i think we're sort of hardwired a little bit to take in you know more calories than we we really need just like we take in more water than we really need every day so we're hardwired for that um, we are able to expend uh, extra energy if we i think if we do it a lot um if we sort of overeat really, really regularly, um, you know, this is where we may get a problem with blood pressure. As the body's trying to control the weight, we're overeating and our blood pressure may may, may suffer because of that. And uh, you speak to any cardiologist and the best treatment of blood pressure is to go on a low, low carbohydrate, sorry, a low calorie diet. Blood pressure will go down immediately. And I did, you know, bring up salt at the very beginning knowing I, I don't think that the relationship between salt and blood pressure or metabolic problems is, is very scientifically sound. But can, can you comment on that? Is, is salt something we should be worrying about? I sort of can't really comment on it. So I didn't really go into that in the book. From a personal perspective, I have no issues with salt. I think if you have high blood pressure, um, again, I didn't really do a great deal of reading about salt and blood pressure, but I would suspect, you know, probably not taking excess salt if you have high blood pressure. But otherwise, I would think you know, I don't have any big, mm -hmm. big advice on that. What, what, what do you think are some of the psychological pitfalls that people can fall into when they're trying to change their lifestyle? I think people get into their own habits. Um, and sometimes those are unhealthy habits. And you will know better than me, but those habits sort of spark nice dopamine serotonin responses they make people feel good and you know with in this day and age after lockdown for a year it's sort of like you know comfort foods and netflix that you know this is a a habit that the population most of the population has got into it's quite a nice habit but it's not very healthy so i think breaking bad habits and you know getting into good habits can be difficult at first and again it's not my area it's more of you know, behavioral psychology. Um, but I think, yeah, that can be a big pitfall. But the more they understand about, you know, the pathways of why you have this bad habit and why it makes you feel so good mm -hmm. and what to do, you know, if you sort of have a wave of craving to do that thing, you know, just uh, let that wave go. Just, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm starting to think of habits more and more like our underlying operating system. And a book that changed my mind about this or influenced me about this is called Atomic Habits. And it's how to program, how to remove unhealthy habits and how to program more helpful habits. And what I've found is, so if, if you want to program something in your life, normally it will take a lot of motivation and energy at the beginning. Say you want to go to the gym regularly, but the more you do it, the less your motivation is particularly required or necessary. Like, you're not motivated to brush your teeth in the morning. You just brush your teeth because that's what you do. You've always done it. The, there's very little risk that you're not going to brush your teeth on any given day. And similarly, I find if you've gone to the gym, you know, most days for six months, 
month seven, it's not that you necessarily wake up feeling particularly motivated every time. You might feel motivated sometimes, but it just it just becomes the thing that you do on a daily basis. Yeah. I think the other thing, the other trap I worry that people fall into is that, and this applies to much more than weight. This is kind of from the psychoanalytic literature, but I, I think people cr- construct an idealized version of themselves when they want to achieve something. So they want to take up the piano, for instance, they picture themselves, you know, as the next Chopin or something like that. Then they humbly try and make efforts to learn the piano. And when they inevitably fail to live up to that quite unrealistic idealization, they classify themselves as a failure. And I think similarly with weight loss, when someone starts a weight loss program, they picture themselves as like ripped with abs on on the beach. And as you know, they might make really good sound progress, but because they don't match up to that image of themselves, they still see themselves as a failure. And then that, you know, causes a spiral back to the old habits and the old problems. Yeah. And this sort of misunderstanding of why, you know, um, why calorie restriction per se is sort of bound for failure. If you don't understand that, then you're going to blame yourselves. But yeah, um, I think realistic expectations is, is important. So if someone's quite overweight and in their 50s, they're not going to get back to the weight they were when they were a teenager, uh, even with good habits. Um, a lot of these reality TV shows, like The Biggest Losers, which are mentioned in the book, are really damaging to um, people's perception of what is realistic because those shows just look at a, a, period, a specific period of time, two, three months in a boot camp with fantastic results. But when you look at the evidence of what happens to these participants five, six years later, most of them have put most of the weight on again or more. But, you know, just focusing on that short-term thing, like, oh, this person's been to a boot camp for two, three months, their life has changed, really sort of drills this sort of level of guilt even further into people that they can't do it and it's their fault. Mm -hmm. And it also strikes me that we focus on weight as the primary goal, like literally the number. Yeah. And it doesn't make very much sense because... Even if you're even if you're taking the ultra vain aesthetic point of view, you're not really chasing a number. You're chasing body composition. You're chasing what's the the ratio of muscle to to fat at at any given point in time. Which body weight can be helpful as a proxy, but it can be like notoriously unreliable. Like you can have a very good body composition and still be classified as overweight with an overweight BMI, for instance. Yeah, I mean, um, BMI assumes that your body is of normal composition. So if you have a particular muscular body, then um, your BMI may be in the overweight or obese category, but you sit, you don't have much body fat. Um, it's just the way BMI is designed. Again, if you have not much fat, you can be fat, but be within the normal BMI range. So yeah, it's, it's limited, but uh, we sort of have to understand it's based on an average uh, body composition. One thing I wanted to talk to you about was more on a, on a societal level. Uh, I come from Malta, which is a country Boris Johnson recently outed as famously being very bad at managing our levels of, of obesity. We have some of the highest levels of obesity, both in adults and children in Europe, with 68% of our adult men in the overweight or obese range, for instance. Now, it was interesting because I was looking at some statistics and comparing them to the things you described in your book. And despite our high levels of obesity, we have very low levels of saturated fat intake. My question is, what if you were part of the sort of government administration and you had to make sort of more societal recommendations for people in terms of how should they eat? You know, what, what kind of policies uh, might you think about and is there any data that we should be collecting that we're not, like, for example, omega-3 to omega-6 ratios in individuals? So, I mean, it can be measured, the omega-3-6 ratio in individuals, but, you know, the, it's, not, it's not mainstream, the, the fact that this disruption has caused obesity. But, so my book lays out, you know, what governments potentially could do. The first thing is they won't do anything until they understand the problem. You know, they understand that it's the quality of the food available to a population that causes that population or a subset of that population to become 
of these sick and unhappy. Um, it's not to do with the population's psyche or, you know... Lack of willpower. Lack of willpower. It's to do with you know, the quality of the food, so the processed and industrialised food available to that population. If they understand that, then they may be more prone to thinking about taxing, I would say, quite heavily that type of food. Maybe even put warnings rather than just calories, but warnings about it. The tax revenues could then be channeled to making healthy foods, so vegetables, meat, fish, dairy products, much cheaper. And also some of the money could be channeled to a public education campaign, maybe encouraging uh, you know, or regenerating food culture in a country. So, you know, the joy of cooking, teach people how to cook, you know, the joy of uh, socializing around food, this sort of thing, um, and having food and cooking as a, a real central pillar to the way we live, not only from physical, but also from an emotional and psychological mm-hmm. happiness point of view. But if governments don't understand the problem, then they won't, they won't do that. Mm-hmm. Since you've discovered more about these principles of metabolic health, and started to implement them in your practice, have you noticed a difference in terms of how patients can take them on board, the ease with which they can take them on board as opposed to low-calorie dieting? And have you noticed that you've been able to uh, avoid doing surgeries where previously you might have had to perform bariatric surgery? So this is sort of mentioned in the book that the, the book is designed for people who are overweight, really. Uh, well, it's designed for anyone who's interested in, in weight regulation. It's a popular science. So a lot of people are interested in this area, as it does affect our country uh, significantly. But as far as sort of helping people to not become obese, it's for those people who are overweight who would consider normally going on, you know, every six months a quite a stringent, basically low-calorie diet. Uh, it explains why, you know, that actually is counterproductive and makes things worse. And to not do that, but actually to, you know, start cooking food, start eating proper food, stop snacking to moderate amount of exercise that you enjoy. If you go to a level of uh, the patient who comes to my clinic, so they're morbidly obese, their body mass index can be 40, 45, 50. These people have you know, quite severe leptin resistance already. They will lose weight you know, with the, the lifestyle and dietary changes outlined in the book, but maybe not enough or fast enough for them to get back into uh, a modicum of health. So this is where bariatric surgery for these particular people who have sort of gone too far, they've been dieting their whole lives. Um, Bariatric surgery is a a, a very safe and effective tool, you know, to reset their weights to a much, much healthier level. And these people come back full of confidence, really, really happy with a new lease of life. Mm -hmm. So I guess once they reach that point where the endocrinological system is sufficiently distorted, then it it becomes a much more viable solution to their difficulties. Or I guess, I suppose a first step, which then can be followed by the lifestyle changes which you recommend. Yeah, exactly. So anyone who's had bariatric surgery, I would certainly advise that they stick to those. That's what I advise, that they stick to uh, healthy and processed foods. Before, before you learned all this about these metabolic principles, did you find that patients post-surgery, your patients had a harder time because they, they wouldn't have these principles to fall back on? Yeah, I sort of tended to leave uh, that type of advice to the dietitians. So, yeah, before I started sort of uh, getting more interested in it. I mean, I definitely had, as most people do, including most doctors, quite a big prejudice subconscious prejudice against the obese um, because I didn't understand the problem but you know I got just totally intrigued by this this question because all the stories that the obese people patients Mm -hmm. were telling me were very similar yeah I can lose weight but I put it back on I think I got a low metabolism I think it's you know genetic in my family we're all big you know all of these things just kept on coming up and coming up and coming up they go against you know our popular beliefs but you know patients weren't colluding they were uh yeah trying to tell me something so um that's what the book is based upon yeah and of course it, do- it doesn't mean that things like discipline and hard work and-, and willpower don't matter or don't have an influence but what you're saying is clearly when 
two-thirds of the population are, are suffering incredibly from this kind of problem with all of these repeated patterns. And like you say, it does tend to run in families. And I talked to Robert Plowman on my last podcast, who's a geneticist, and he said that genetic studies indicate that body weight is 70% heritable, which of course is not to say that the environment doesn't matter, but some genetics clearly predispose, if combined with a Western diet, to the to the obesity issue. Yeah, so we done that sort of outlined, outlined in, I think, chapter two of, uh, of the book as well. Um, yeah, around about a, a 70% uh, correlation between, you know, your genetics and your BMI. But the trigger of becoming obese has to be, you know, western way we live so highly processed industrialized foods le- le- less fresh foods more snacking less sleep more stress that's the issue great so we've covered a lot i think we've captured the main thrust of the book i would encourage everyone to read it congratulations for being the first surgeon on this very psychiatrist dominated podcast but it was very nice to hear your your refreshing and and um, informative take on this subject is there anything else you want to add before before you sign off? I just uh, thanks for, for showing an interest, Alex, and uh, uh, great questions, actually. Really enjoyable. And where can people get the book? From any good booksellers, plus Tesco and Amazon. And actually, the audio is, the audio is very, very popular. And uh, I, I listened to the audio, actually, and I really liked it. Good. Thanks, Alex. Take care. Thank you. Thank you very much. You are listening to The Thinking Mind Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend or give us a rating. It really does help people to find us. If you find the podcast valuable, why not buy us a coffee to help keep us going? There's a link in the show notes. As ever, we love to hear from you and love to hear what you think. So drop us an email or get in touch on social media. Thank you so much.